If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. Are you one of those people who thinks it's okay to drive stone? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You end up driving below the speed limit? It's no big deal, right? Wrong. The truth is, your reaction times slow way down when you're high. You not only put yourself in danger, but everyone around you. Talk about a buzzkill. Stop kidding yourself. It's not okay to drive high. If you've been using marijuana in any form, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Before we do anything, let's get a couple of things out of the way. Very important to let you know that the Let's Go Eat Show is created and produced on a PC laptop's computer. New computers starting at just $7.99. PC laptops. We love you. Thank you, Dan Young. Uh, Also, the following podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Broadway media, its management, or its advertisers. And also, it's important to let you know that the following podcast definitely will contain nudity adult language sorry adult language definitely yeah all right uh we're going to be talking to charlie halford he's an actor he lives in um uh, la and uh he's an actor he's been on the show uh lucifer and he's been on a show Constantine? uh, constantine and he was skunk in a disney movie what more do you need to know except that he's from salt lake city and uh he's a vegan and he has a movie. He has a movie in theaters this weekend uh, called uh, "Bad Times at the El Royale," uh, and it looks to be a very interesting movie. And also, he's got a very weird story to tell. About halfway through, I think. Yep. It's a very weird story about one of the weirdest stories we might have ever heard on this. It's couple about, hundred episodes. It's about how he craved attention so much. Well, that's it. You'll, you'll just have to hear him tell it himself. All right, here we go. Oh, and thanks to Casey at uh, Zest once again for being a great host. Here we go. Charlie Halford on the Let's Go Eat Show. Oh, yeah, I should make sure this is off, too. I think All right, you can go ahead and roll anytime. We've been rolling for six minutes. Oh, well, we can, oh, all right. we can just roll that stuff in there. It's so fine. Charlie Halford is our guest on the Let's Go Eat Show. We're at Zest, which is one, it's interesting. It's one of our favorite places to come, and it's because they're very accommodating here at Zest, right here on West Temple, uh, between what, 2nd and 3rd South? Uh, West, uh, no, not West Temple, right. Second West, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, so we said to Charlie today when he was here at the, in the studio, uh, you want to be on the Let's Go Eat show? Yeah, sure. Uh, what do you like to eat? I'm vegan. Zest. And you've been here before. Yeah, yeah. This is a regular haunt of mine when I'm in town. Uh, they've got a really good, fresh menu. Mm-hmm. And when you're in town, because usually you are in Hollywood, L.A. Yeah. Do, you, do you live in Hollywood? No, I avoid Hollywood probably probably more than I try to get there. Uh, I live in like Van Nuys in the Valley, um, working class neighborhood. Yeah. Um, got a house with a yard and a dog, yeah. so I try to have a some semblance of a quiet life in uh, in Los Angeles. So we should okay. Well, we got to tell people who Charlie Halford is, a Salt Lake native, uh, born here in uh, the. 80s? Yeah, 1980, Cottonwood Cottonwood Hospital, which is different now. It's like, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. 
I, it's not a hospital I go to. I think it's now the Intermountain Health. Uh, it's the yeah, it's it's the really big one down by Murray Park. But yeah, born okay. oh, 1980. Yeah, okay. uh, yeah. Now it's the uh, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, uh, and uh, and you went to Cottonwood High School. Correct. Did, were you a now Charlie? Were uh, is is an actor, a working actor in California, in Los Angeles. Uh, so when you were in high school, when did you th- when did you think about acting? Um, you know, it. I, I don't even know if I still think about it. I, <laughs> I, uh, I fortunately got direction, I guess, early on. Um, the first acting, I guess, official acting experience I got was in eighth grade. That was the first year we were allowed to take drama class. Um, and at that point, I was already kind of acting out a lot in <laughs> what do you mean by that charlie oh and all my other like oh, to put it plainly i was getting f's in pretty much every class not a good student not a good student and then i took a drama class and i got an a for basically the same behavior um, acting out <laughs> acting out yeah. yeah and that felt pretty good um and it was right on time because uh ninth year was coming up and that's high school so you are what school are you in in junior high bonneville junior high bonneville, okay. yeah and uh, and then yeah, I knew that the grades started counting in ninth grade, and so fortunately, I, I you know I kind of started getting my act together right when I started getting my act. So together. you're telling people that you can be a fuck up until through all throughout the eighth grade and get away with it because it doesn't mean shit. Yeah, I mean, well, as long as you have a yeah yeah, just keep your eye on the prize. Know that it matters a lot once you hit ninth grade. Then you got to drive. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was it was really that simple. It was like if I wanted to drive, then I needed to have. A 3.0. So not only did I get my shit together. Is that what your your parents said? Well, yeah, because it was like a uh, it was a car insurance break, like a good student dry, uh, car insurance break. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did that. I just barely, and I did just that. I eked out a 3.0 <laughs> through in ninth grade mm-hmm. through uh, from then on. Yeah. Um, yeah, and did, uh, Dylan's uh, the producer of the show. He's it's Dylan Allred. He's the producer of the show. He's not related to me. No, not at all. No, no. I say that for his protection. Though. Okay, not you know. Uh, just we just he coincidentally has the same last name. That as is I coincidence. Know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, let me. So you grow. You're growing up in the Cottonwood area. You have siblings. Yeah, I'm the youngest of four. Okay, your parents just. What do they do? Um, my mother worked for uh, DCFS. She was also an Avon lady. She DCFS worked, is Department uh, of Family Services? Yeah, Children, Children Welfare mm-hmm. uh, Services. So she worked for the state. My father was a bit of a character. Um, good good guy, very charismatic, always had a good story. Uh, wasn't around too much. Um, so, But when he popped in, he was fun? Yeah, but everybody yeah. liked him. Yeah. <laughs> he was a very funny man. Yeah. A uh, very, very enjoyable person. Mm-hmm. Um, you but, say was, not... Yeah, yeah, he passed in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, but fortunately, for me at least, uh, it was kind of a slow go. Like, he had leukemia and died uh, mm-hmm. with com- from complications of all that. Mm-hmm. But for those developmental years, I mean, if you do the math backwards... Um, that puts that puts him getting sick right about 1994, right about eighth year. So he was around. He got to see my productions, and oh. my older siblings didn't quite get the same. You know, sort of. Uh, he when he had his health, he wasn't around much, and yeah. and uh, I, I got a lot more father, uh, which I'm entirely got, grateful. You, for. You had yeah. a relationship with him that your your older siblings, didn't yeah. Have. yeah, and and you know I think through that, me and my siblings have have 
bonded in his wake in in a strange way hmm. as well. So it's a it's a, it's a cool family, super supportive, and um, y'all get along and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and yeah. If you knew me as a kid, you know, this is that's a huge achievement. <laughs> the fact that the fact that you know they have, uh, they still like you, that they still like <laughs> yes, <laughs> that they still accept me, <laughs> and uh, that we can get along. Well, well, I mean, what you you were uh, not a you were not easy to get along with. I think I was just yeah. I think I was just you know rambunctious, and I got you know I got into stuff you know substances and things like that kind of early on, and mm-hmm. um, I don't you know scrapes with the law. Fortunately, I didn't ac- accumulate much of a record, but a lot of my friends weren't so lucky, and mm-hmm. um, I, you know that's that's been a lot of my life is sort of bearing witness and i use it a lot in my work now um just sort of bearing witness to to the rough side of things and i've always sort of walked to the edge and looked over without ever yeah you know going there probably much to my you know maybe my mom gets credit for that too she she mothered me with you know semi-light hands with a lot of trust which i don't know where she got it from because i didn't have a there wasn't a lot of reason for that but but she always trusted that i'd be okay and i always was <laughs> so. uh, she was uh, uh, maybe that came from she knew she knew what you were like because she worked with if uh, she worked for the division of yeah. child and family services she knew what kids were like sure and I, well and I think that there's also you know um, she's just a very you know patient woman and um, I think I think my father was a lot the same way when he was when he was in his final days I, I sensed a lot of almost regret from him about how he, he he maybe should have perfor- uh, pursued the arts, you know. He always chased business and money, and I don't think that was his strong suit. Because um, he had a, a magnificent pen, he was a great visual artist. I also dabble mm. in in the arts. He mm. could he could carry a tune. He was a very talented guy, mm. and I think, you know, he, but he was always he was always like fifty thousand dollars next month rather than five hundred bucks this week. And, yeah. Mm. Um, and fortunately, you know. Uh, he got to see me start finding some success in it, mm-hmm. uh, be- yeah. you know, before he went, before he passed. But uh, um, that eighth grade production that you were in, mm-hmm. uh, so you're in a drama class. What? Who was the teacher? Oh man, Do you remember who it was? Oh no, man or a woman? It was a woman. Yes, yeah. and I feel so. She, t- she nurtured you a bit. And- yeah. Well, well, the- well, she just yeah, she just she, my first. Drama teacher, I mean, she yeah, she just let me go. What was the production? Do you know Johnny you know? Appleseed? Uh huh. Sure. And, and it was a mu- yeah. it was a musical, and I played the grandpa because it was the non singing part, and I was terrified of singing. So mm-hmm. I tried to do a production before that of uh, Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. and I was supposed to be a Munchkin. And now keep in mind, I'm about a head taller than everybody in my class, like throughout my life. How tall are you now? Six. Seven, if I yeah. you know, if I'm having a good day, six mm-hmm. six on, mm-hmm. you know, in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I bailed on the Wizard of Oz uh, like the week before we went into production. And there's another, actually, an actor in town here, Nathan Stevens, who who does a lot of work, and he's one of my dear friends. Um, and he was my Munchkin dancing partner, <laughs> and I totally bailed on him like a week before the production, and so he was the one Munchkin up there dancing by himself, and I, <laughs> I felt that bad. Must ab- have been lonely. <laughs> well, you know, I know, awkward, but but uh, yeah, I felt I felt bad about it. 
uh, and he was, you know, he went on and was Johnny Appleseed in Johnny Appleseed. Um, and uh, and then we ended up going to Cottonwood High School together. His older brothers, the Stevens brothers, are um, another, you know, if you pay attention to the acting community here, you definitely know of uh, the Stevens brothers. Um, and so he had this sort of legacy in fact, Conwood High School kind of had a legacy of... Uh, a lot of actors came out of there? A lot of actors uh, came out of there, and they just won everything. Mm-hmm. There was a woman uh, named Joan Hahn, uh, and she really built a, uh, a drama department at Cottonwood that was bulletproof. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And they had the biggest auditorium. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine that auditorium still... Yeah up there as far as high school auditoriums go. So the production value of their musicals were massive for a high school production. And she left the year before I got there. And uh, Dr. Corey Tuckness uh, took over the department. And in her stead, we sort of bared the responsibility of, uh, or bore the responsibility of keeping this legacy going. And Dr. T, as we called him, was was great that's pretty impressive to have a a phd running a high school yeah program yeah i think he was the only one really and um at least in the state Mm -hmm. and uh and he had come from college of eastern utah Uh which is where uh myself and a lot of the the flock of actors from cottonwood inevitably ended up going um to to further our education but but it was just a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. and and not a lot of pressure. The only pressure was like, look, don't let me down. Um, and the other thing that he really instilled, I don't know if he meant to do it or or if I just absorbed it, was this is entirely up to you. I'm not, you know, performing the play with you. So so he would block it out. He never gave a lot of performance direction. Um, he would let us discover. It was just show up on time, have respect for the work. And then whenever we would go into production, he he didn't. I don't think he watched one production with an audience, so it was entirely our show hmm. when when we showed up. It's an and, interesting approach. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in it. I think uh, in terms of especially with developing actors, uh, because it really is. It's going to be you. It's going to be you your whole life. You're going to work with a lot of different directors, but but if if you don't individually have sort of the work ethic. Um, yeah, I think I worked director, with directors like that who would only give you performance advice mm-hmm. if you asked for it. If right. you said, "I can't figure out how to do this," right? Then they'd say, "Well, why don't you try sitting down on that line?" Right. Well, when I think they wouldn't give you even an interpretation. They'd just say, "Well, why don't you move over there and see if that helps?" Right. Or, you know. Well, working with directors has, has become a really interesting. I mean, you know, it's it's something that I think only experience kind of can can help you navigate it's not an easy thing to just kind of like intellectualize because some directors one of the best directors i think i've worked with is a great actor is ray mckinnon who did uh, rectify and yeah i um i got into that that series um why did i get into watching that because it's it was really low-key and uh, just kind of off the radar for most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people will not know what the fuck you're talking about. You say the series called Rectify. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I read a, read something about it in the New Yorker. Right. Some a reviewer in the New Yorker said, "If you haven't watched this, you're there's something wrong with you. This is crazy. This is a great show." So I started watching it, and you were in it. Yeah. 
and that was a really interesting experience as well because I think like everybody else, I didn't really know about this show. It was on the Sundance Channel, mm-hmm. and uh, but I kept working with actors that were involved on it, and it's rare. I mean, actors tend to be proud of the work that they do, but it's they loved this show. Yeah, I think the first. Uh, I think it was Abigail Spencer. I was I was here working on a film called Haters, and uh, she was in that. She was and, really good. She's 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 great. Um, she's great in everything. And uh, and I spoke with her for a moment, and she mentioned this show Rectify and how amazing it is. And uh, yeah, I, you were only in like the third season or something, right? The, or? Yeah, the four. I think it's the fourth season, the final season of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so it was just you know you log it and you go okay that's cool. And then I also for many years, and probably in the future will as well work uh, at the Sundance Film Institute, which happens down at the the Sundance Resort every summer, mm-hmm. which is a great film program that helps develop. I mean, it, I, I believe Paul Thomas Anderson came through there. Yep. I, I think Quentin Tarantino may have even come through there. I think so. Um, Taika Waititi, who just did Thor Ragnarok, came through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kerry Fukunaga, who did True Detective and just did Maniac, that's now on Netflix, came through. I mean, it's a, the, like the list of of directors that are amazing that come through that program is staggering. And uh, uh, that's actually where I met Kerry, which eventually would lead to True Detective. But... But uh, I, I worked with Clayne Crawford there, who was also in Rectify. And then uh, J.D. Evermore is another one of the cast. Anyways, this, these, the cast kept saying, oh, this amazing show, Rectify, this amazing show, Rectify. I was like, I got to watch that, I got to watch that, I got to watch that. And then the next thing I I knew, I, there's so many thousands of productions out there. Yeah. The fact that this came down the pipe was just incredible. And I'd already started watching it and was in love with it. And that's another interesting, I think, challenge as an actor is... As much as I want to say, you know, I'm unfazed and I just do the work, it's like, mm-hmm. in a show like that, where the lead, uh, played by Aiden Young, Yeah, what's, is, it, what's his name again? The actor's name's Aiden Young, the character's name's Daniel Holden, and uh, and he plays this f- just delicate, razor-thin, you know, just this beautiful performance, um, and it was an interesting challenge when I went to work on the show... Because I knew him, you know, and, and like, I mean, I knew him from the show. I knew the character, but my character wasn't supposed to know him at all. He was just, and so that was an interest. It's, it's, it's interesting to, to be in something that you're a fan of, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And that's not something that you get to experience in the theater. That's a very TV uh, specific sort of problem. Let's go back to, um, let's go back to uh, high school. And mm-hmm. uh, so you go to Cottonwood. High school, this big theater that's built for musicals. Did yeah. you learn to sing and do musicals? I, I eventually did. Um, I yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Do you think, like them? I do. I do. I and I think developing my voice is something that I'll continue to do. I never put that much concerted effort. When you're getting back into your busy fall routine, but still want to make every breakfast count, try Blue Apron's new ready-to-cook meals that offer your favorite fresh, quality ingredients ready in minutes. With 60-plus options each week, you can choose from an ever-changing mix of high-quality meat, fish, vegetarian, WW-recommended, and health-conscious offerings. Get a $100 gift card, plus enjoy $130 off across your first six orders when you place an order by September 23rd. Visit blueapron.com unique2022. Put into it, but, but um, I did musicals through 
high school because they were the most fun, really. And I, I was a fan of musicals. I love them still today. Um, but it wasn't until I was like 21 and going to bars and, you know, there wasn't a lot of acting work that was giving me my fix. And so I got a little bit of performance fix, I think, from karaoke. <laughs> and that's sort of where, uh, I, yeah, I, I would say I learned to sing quite a bit just <laughs> just yeah. in a bar in a bar yeah, yeah. um so uh what's your what what's the first dramatic role you remember doing on stage that you that you just went oh okay okay this is this is what this is what i want to do with myself well um in my my senior year was a good year um and i at that point competitively we'd done some stuff but but uh we we were going to do of mice and men i think dr t saw what he had he he you know he he we had a, a kind of male heavy uh group and he had a really big guy who who could hang you me and um and that was really special because for 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 i guess numerous numerous reasons one was uh that's required reading in junior high so I knew the story. So I knew, you know, I, I'd read the book, and now I'm reading the play. That was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the uh, Steppenwolf guys, John Malkovich and Gary Sinise, had had just released their of Mice and Men several years before. So there was this on-screen adaptation of their award-winning production of of Mice and Men. And as a big dumb guy, <laughs> I sympathized with Lenny in a way that uh, was pretty profound and. Seeing as how he's, you know, uh, you know, dis- disabled or mentally challenged, slow. He's slow, slow. Yeah, I'm not sure the right. He's slow. That's yeah. probably the right word for it. Um, there was a lot of characterization to that, and at the time, being kind of a punk kid, I don't think I took it as sensitively as I would now. You know, like like there's an honor in playing something other than you know, like there's just a certain responsibility to that. Um, yeah, uh, uh, hang on there for a second. I think you hit, you touched something there that's pretty, that I think is really delicate and pretty pretty profound. Oftentimes, when you see someone portraying uh, a, a person who is mentally challenged mm-hmm. or has you know a disability, a mental disability, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's. You, you, well, for instance, you're seeing more and more people uh, with Down syndrome playing people with Down syndrome, yes, and which I is think beautiful. That's, that's terrific. Yeah. But you'll see people, for instance, when Rosie O'Donnell played that character, what was it called, Riding with My Sister on the Bus, or mm-hmm. something like that, and I think it was Juliet Lewis, and and it was horrible. Yeah, you know, it was just horrible because she's just playing. I'm not going to play a person yeah. who's who's mentally challenged. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, and it was just dreadful and you see that all the time of a mimic it's a mimicking mm-hmm. of it and it's and it just give, makes your skin crawl sometimes people hit it and they right. do it right because because it takes a sensitivity a, an understanding i think of i think yeah well i think it's it, it goes further than that when you have a lot of these ethnically sort of ambiguous actors that are asked to play you know a variety of different races yeah. and cultures yeah. and things like you really have to be sensitive to that, I, I mean, I find it, frankly, one of the hardest things, and, and recently with politics, the political climate as it is, I've, I've been turning down more and more opportunities that are just racists and horrible people, um, because I just, I don't, 
I don't, I don't really feel like filling that bucket of society. It's so out there. I don't know if that's like, I don't know if that's the right thing to do because it's. But to me, I feel like I've done it in a, in a certain regard. Yeah. But it's the same sort of. I guess it's the same sort of idea where it's like you know, regardless of anybody's opinions, they're they're people that you know what you you know. I don't know. It's it's it, it gets tough when it gets into that. But but to go back to the original point. Um, it was there was some safety in seeing you know John Malkovich navigate that in such a in such mm-hmm. a way, and I think when I took the stage in that production, I more or less just kind of embodied some of the physicality and the vocal things that he did. You copied him a little bit. I copied. That's him. That's okay. I, at that at that age, it was the thing to do, and some magic happened though within that production where there wasn't there was never a false tear. There was never a like it all happened. It was okay. So, so there's there's two modes of thinking I think in acting a lot. There's I need to feel it to do it, mm-hmm. which is which is pervasive and everywhere. That's yeah. what a lot of people really focus on. But then there's this other side which is like, well, if I do it, I'll feel it. You know, Willem Dafoe's a huge proponent of that. Well, I think Olivier used to say, uh, he. Well, it was a great story that Laurence Olivier was in the movie with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know that story probably where they were his marathon man. <laughs> my, and my, my, what, what does he say? Is I think he said, I, I, uh, I'm staying up all night. I have to, I'm doing a scene where he's supposed to be exhausted. Hoffman is, is supposed to be exhausted. And he says, I've been staying up all night. And Because I'm doing that scene where I'm supposed to be exhausted. And Laurence Olivier says, well, you know, you might try acting, my it's, dear it's boy. It's acting, my dear boy. It's <laughs> yeah. acting, boy. Well, yeah. But Olivier used to say he never really... He never really found the soul of his character until he decided on what nose to use. Right, he this, would do, find a different, you know, a bit different prosthetic nose. This or, sort of thing is is it, it was a huge lesson to me, um, but it was also so much. I mean, Malkovich did such a great job in that in that piece, and whatever magic he created, I got a taste. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then it took me years to sort of decipher what had happened because mm-hmm. we were talking I think before we hit record about taking credit for the stuff sometimes it's the director sometimes it's the script um, sometimes it's just where you're at in your life and, and being a conduit you know sort of being mm-hmm. available to it and I guess I can take credit for that practice or the ability to do that but but it's nothing so remarkable as like like devising it and plotting it and planning it and, and doing it sometimes it just works <laughs> it's, you know I mean and everybody has their own but that was the that was the production where you yeah. thought, yeah. I, well, I went on. I, I was honored for it. Um, the Murray Eagle, I think it was called the Eagle. The local newspaper uh, gave me a Performer of the Year award for that and felt for good. yeah. It was it was cool, man. It was actually it was one of those things where I think there was maybe one or two students that went through Cottonwood before me that got the Performer of the Year award because what that award is is it's not just one part in one play. It's like a combination of what you did in the musical and what you did in the you know the straight play and and so thanks to we did Oliver and I was Bill Sykes and Oliver that year and then you know uh, Lenny and a Bison Men I got that honor and it really was it really was a special because to me it wasn't like it wasn't a you just did a good job at this one thing it was like you're actually a good actor mm-hmm. that and a versatile actor and uh, and that was a, yeah that was a that's a small matter of of pride in my development and uh, so um, you you. Um then you went on to College of Eastern Utah. College of Eastern Utah. Two-year yeah. two program there. Two-year program. I made it one. Um, That's all you could take or well, all you could afford? or 
all you needed? It was a combination of things. Mostly, I, th- I think what I've always done is follow the path of least resistance toward playing. I like playing around. Um, and so when I didn't have an outlet for that, I just did it everywhere and anywhere. Once I found it, I was able to focus it. Um, College of Eastern Utah wasn't much of a decision. I didn't really apply anywhere else. It was like, you know, you went to Cottonwood, you can go here. And then I got down there, and I front-loaded all of my classes with the drama classes, you know, uh, acting classes and the fun the fun that's, shit. That's all you really wanted to yeah. do. And, uh, and we did it. We did some great plays, made some great friends, had a great time. Um, and then at the time, my father's, you know, health was sort of uh, diminishing and... And so after the first year, I came back to Salt Lake to care for him. I had a band. Uh, the Kamikazes was an old punk band that we... Re- I remember that yeah, band recall- I, I believe uh, X-96 got us up on the local stage at uh, Warp Tour. And we probably, like, huh. we probably pushed, pawned off a, a, a couple demos on you guys. Yeah, I'm sure. Something. Yeah, I remember them being around. Um, and so I had the band, and uh, and I was back in Salt Lake... And I was looking at the classes that I'd have to go back and take, and it was all the boring ones. It was all the science and math and and the general eds. And, again, my friend uh, Nathan Stevens was making good money up here doing film. I mean, he but he was a type 2. He's a great actor, first and foremost, but but he was 19 and looked, you know, 14, 15, which is just a goldmine if you've got some chops. And I was like 19 and looked about 23 which is about the most awkward phase of an actor's career um but i still thought i'd try it out um i've always been in love with the the stage but the uh the decision was going to be made sooner than later to go to new york or go to la and i was like okay well probably the way to do this to make the most money is to make a name for myself you know doing film and then hopefully get invited to the great stages with the great players in front of the great crowds. And that's, I think, what I'm still working toward today. Um, so that summer, I said, all right, you know, I'll try out the the film stuff here. There was a meandering scene. Here. I was like, there's enough here to, to, f- to see if I can do it. And I've always been of the thinking where it's like, okay, well, if there's something in your backyard, you know, it's best to get that rather than go big. And I was like, I've got to prove to myself first that I can book film and television work here before I can think of anything else and it took a couple years but eventually uh, it did start it did start uh, working out I think my first I think my first professional credit was uh, a Disney movie called Luck of the Irish that still plays every St. Patrick's Day and uh, I was like a evil leprechaun henchman (laughs) my line got cut out of it because I just so oh, what, did you just get yourself a, a an agent here, or yeah, yeah? Well, Nate Nate walked me into his agent, and they were great. But they also, you know, I also kind of got the feeling of, uh, uh, oh, this is you know, this is Nate's buddy. Let's just. Uh, so I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I was all like it wasn't my agent as a favor kind of thing. Uh-huh. But then eventually, I was actually just right. It's kind of crazy, right? About a block away, I was taking an acting class. Uh, it's not around anymore, and I got scouted out of that class to a different agency, um, and that agency was, I wouldn't really say on the up and up, but uh, they were selling a lot of classes, and you know, just, there's a lot of people out there trying to take advantage of people. Yeah. There's people out there actually selling people dreams, where it's just like, oh, hey, you've got an interesting look, you should 
pay me thousands of dollars and consider an acting career. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, uh, so I was, um, uh, I was there, but, but to their credit, they were getting me out. And <laughs> I guess to my credit, I, I booked some work. Uh, and the one, two, three that happened was Luck of the Irish. And then I went and actually booked uh, Ocean's Eleven, which I ended up cut out of as well. Was that was that filmed here? No, that was down in Vegas. And that was, you know, Steven Soderbergh at the height of his right. uh, uh, everything, Oscar winners. And, and I yeah, I went there and I booked it as a local hire. It was high stress. Um, but I managed to, to get it. How was it high stress? What do you mean? I mean, it's just a lot of, you know, it's high stress when you're driving, you know, eight hours just for a shot at something and then you come back and then they you get a call back and you got to do that again and and so i don't know it felt like there was a lot of a lot of pressure but i overcame it and that, that's a whole other story and then there was a tv show called cover me and after that the agency asked me to start teaching classes which i was really reluctant to do because i was like a college dropout who had been pretty much cut out of two out, out of three things <laughs> Were they going to pay you to do that? Yeah, they were going to pay me really, really well, too well, kind of thing, you know. Hmm. And um, and I I avoided doing it um, to a point where I think my thinking was someone's going to do this, you know. And I knew that I cared a great deal about acting. To go back further, before the fluke of eighth grade acting class, I was manipulating my emotions, and you know, I mean, my mother, to be fair. Uh, probably from age about like eight or nine. Like I remember very distinctly the first time I made myself cry through my imagination. To, and, to manipulate your mother. To get attention. Yeah. So manipulate your mother sounds a lot harder than like there was a need that I think that I needed um, and she was very busy mm-hmm. and I found a way to to make her pay attention. You know, she would take time off work. She would take me to the doctor. I would get ice cream. Um, you know, that's evil. I know. Fortunately, I found a way to, you know, uh, put that towards some direction, channel it into yeah. it. I mean, something per- yeah, yeah, positive because because yeah. that was evil. I mean, straight evil. Yeah. When I was like nineteen, I, I went and sat my parents down, and I was like, "Hey, yeah, I think I need to come clean with you guys. Like, <laughs> I probably owe you a ton of money. <laughs> like, seriously, I thought because because she would every time I would go because I that's what I did. I played sick. I would do crazy things and play sick, and and then we would go to the doctor. Like that was that was uh, the angle, and all I ever heard was like, "Oh, you know, thank goodness we have insurance." See, I thought it was a good thing mm-hmm. as a kid. I didn't realize it was so so much. And I mean, I took this like as far as extreme explore, exploratory surgery. Really? Yeah. When I was probably about ten years old. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a crazy story. I have a big scar. I mean, it's like they took my appendix out. They didn't find anything. <laughs> like, like, and that was what I went. I, we were in, we were in college. My buddy had strep throat. We all had to like throw our money together to get him a, a penicillin shot. Yeah, and that's when I was like, holy cow! You know, I I don't even know how much money is there. So, so, so and when you were at, at the time at ten, you realized even the you were willing to go through exploratory surgery because it was. Cool. I thought. I thought it was cool. I was like, "There's going to be a television in the room. I get this little breathing gizmo that I yeah. can to- toy with." I mean, I can. I, I mean, I can kind of get that. I, I remember when I had my tonsils out as a kid or something. There, I mean, it was not pleasant, but I got to stay home and you know have ice cream and 
and people waited on me. And yeah. That was kind of, yeah. No, I went, I went for it, and yeah. I wasn't squeamish about any of the procedures. So I'm, I'm not saying there's not something a little off. <laughs> no, there's something a lot off about it. Yeah. But, something a lot off about that. But but fortunately, I found a way to, to yeah. direct it. And so with all of that said, I knew I cared about acting. Yeah. And I knew I knew how to do it yeah. one yeah. way or another. Yeah. And uh, this is, this is, That's an amazing story. It's crazy. I don't know if I've... Yeah, you might... I mean, I know I've told it to friends. I don't know if I've... Mm-hmm. It's on the record yet, but, but uh, it's a great. I mean, and it's a good story too. It's not a, it's nothing that you should ultimately be. It seems to me you've forgiven yourself for it because you did come clean to your. Parents. Oh yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. It was one of those things that I carried around for a long time, and once I realized that you didn't have to get cut open <laughs> to get attention. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, was, if you were doing that as an adult, then yeah, there'd well, be something serious. Yeah, yeah. No, but but but. Yeah. But once I realized that there was a way easier way, like I could just go and perform a, a character yeah. and get applause, and I, you know, I didn't have to actually bleed for it. Um, it was good, and uh, and so I did feel like I had, you know, uh, at least stories worth telling uh, to to hopefully teach. You know, in, in all the years I've realized like how little people can actually learn from just stories. You know, you've got to get them acting and you've got to get them doing and. And I think we only learn from direct experience, whether it's meditation or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. You have to do the thing. And, so, um, so you did teach some teaching. So, yeah, eventually I, 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 I took up teaching, um, and that kind of gave me the direction here for the uh, the next about eight years. I was just, that was it. I mean, that was my survival job here was kind of teaching acting, and and I, I managed to maintain about three or four gigs a, a year. Sometimes it was a day, sometimes it was a week. Um, and then after about, I think it was 2007, I did another Disney movie because this was, this was sort of how I, I held it. I said the biggest movies, at least at the time, uh, in Salt Lake with the best exposure because Touched by an Angel had just, um, gone away, um, were, were these Disney channel movies like, you know, high school musical, I think was like really exposed to that in time. And to me it was like, okay, well that's the biggest stuff that's in Salt Lake for me. And for being like kind of this big, scary type, I, I saw the odds kind of against me. I was like, what are the odds of me getting a decent part in a Disney channel movie? If that ever happens, then I'm going to be out of excuses. And it happened, you know, it happened in uh, a movie called Dadnapped where I played a dadnapper named Skunk. Um, yeah, all the way down to like a skunk striped hairdo. It was real, real original. Um, and, uh, but had a blast and it was a big part in a, you know, Disney channel movie. And I said, okay, that's, that's my ticket to LA. I'm going to, and then I went out to LA with like, oh, Hey, I'm on this Disney channel movie. And LA was like, okay, well, (laughs) what else? (laughs) What else have you done? I taught acting classes. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and it was essentially kind of starting over, but, but on the bright side, I did have, you know, I did have some good tape. I'd I'd, ha- I'd worked with some great actors. You know, I'd, I'd had a chance to work with Anthony Hopkins in World's Fastest Indian, which shot out here, and Ving Rhames in a, a movie that Richard Dutcher put together called uh, Evil Angel. Oh, I saw that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, um, that's funny. I saw that uh, before I ever met Richard. I saw yeah. that. Um, and then when I when I met Richard, I didn't recognize him because he'd put on a lot of weight. Okay. Yeah. He's not, and now he's he's back to thin again. But yeah. Anyway. 
Yeah, and um, don't ever call him the father of Mormon cinema. Okay, no, hates that. Sort of figure that. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So, so I got out to L.A. and then had. I think it's important to have like you know something to show for your work, and fortunately, I did have that. I had a good reel, and and then it was just yeah, piece by piece, co-star by co-star, by some good luck here and there, and. What was the first thing you did in L.A.? The very first thing... Oh, this is actually a funny story. The very first thing I did in L.A. was Operation Repo. <laughs> it's not even... A, it's, like a, it's like a fake reality show. I don't even think it's around anymore, but it follows repo people around, right, to repo uh-huh. cars. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it was non-union because I was... Uh, it's called SAG eligible, so you've got the Screen Actors Guild, and when you're like a must-join, you just haven't paid the money yet. And so I, I could still do non-union work, and I'd just gotten hired, like, that day to be a busboy at this South African bar, and I needed it. I, like, I had no money. I was like, I didn't have enough money to go home at that point. So I like, I needed this bus job, this busing job. And I get offered this acting job, and it was going to pay me 250 bucks, and it was just going to be improvised. They're going to show up and try to repo your car. And I turned it down. I was like, no, I need, I need to go make 40 bucks a night. Yeah bussing tables because at least I'll make that every week rather than whatever this is and the employer was like dude you came out here to act go do this thing and I saw I okay all right well I can still have the job okay and so I well, go that was, my, that was good of him yeah, yeah yeah no he was great he was he was he, a good friend over time and um and so I show up to this weird shop I think it's behind maybe Van Nuys airport and um and I meet the cast and then we go to this like workshop that's behind the production office. The production office is literally just a room with a whole bunch of stacks of paper. It was like you know everything you'd expect from like I don't know some weird production office in the valley. And uh, they throw me in this room with uh, these Hispanic uh, workers. You know they're they're making cabinets and none of them speak English. And I don't speak Spanish, but somebody does. And they explain to the, them, "Hey, this guy's going to pretend like he's your boss." And then we're going to show up with cameras, and we're going to make this show. And it was, it was long story short, it was a kind of really awkward and weird experience. Yeah. Improvised scene. I didn't know the show existed. I didn't think anybody watched it. Turns out a ton of people watched that show because, because everybody was calling me up and saying, Oh, hey, man, I didn't know that show was fake until I saw you on it. And we thought it was real. The, the best part of that story is a bartender here. I want to say, well, it was maybe the woodshed. It's not around anymore. I remember the place. But yeah. one of the uh, one of the regulars, uh, Richard, walked in and, and saw my buddy behind the bar and was like, "Oh, hey, you know, I saw Charlie on television the other day," which is not a crazy thing for my friend to hear. And he goes, "Oh, cool, yeah, what was he doing?" He goes, "Oh, it looks like he's doing pretty good out there in Los Angeles. He's got himself a cabinet shop. He's got <laughs> got himself well, except for got a bunch car. of Mexican workers. Yeah, yeah, except for the car being repoed, it seems like he's doing all right." So yes, Richard, I went to California to. Start a career in cabinet making. Yeah, that was my first gig, and then and and it was scary because it was like it was it was like something here that might get made and no one would ever see was seen by a ton of people there with fan mail and blah blah blah. Do people still uh, they'll come up to you and say or just start to go Op- skunk? Um, yeah, sometimes, but but more oddly enough, I get recognized for Luck of the Irish, which I had nothing to do in, but be big and scary. And then I've, I surprisingly get Operation Repo. Really? I get, still. 
I do. I get Reggie Reggie Ledoux a lot, which is True Detective. True Detective, yeah. And um, and then yeah, Constantine. There's some Constantine fans. Chaz, he's now on Legends of Tomorrow, so that's still they're still keeping that alive. But I've but I've been pretty fortunate because I'm 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 a little bit awkward with the public figuredom, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Like I embrace it, but at the same time, uh, it's it's it it fights me. There's a part of me that wants to be a really successful actor, and then there's a part of me that's just like, oh, but don't look at me. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Mm. And I don't know if that's unique to me or. Mm. Well, I don't know. You're a public figure. It's um, yeah, and I get you know, it's. I mean, it's not like I'm mobbed by people, but um, probably anytime I go to the grocery store or. You know, at least one person will say, but it's it's generally pretty pretty casual. It's pretty, hey, hey, Bill, how you doing? It's more like I'm a friend to them. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, hey, how's it going? Hey, Bill, hi. Yeah. And I and I always go, hey, hi. You know, it's just yeah. like I'm a pal around town. It's like a, a their friend. Occasionally, somebody wants to come up and hug me or mm-hmm. have a picture, and that's okay too. You know, it's it's yeah. not a mob, so it's okay. I'm just like, hi, how's it going? Could could we get a picture? Yeah, sure, that's okay. See, uh, yeah, see, that means people like that you, you're liked. I think people like me. Sure. <laughs> but earlier today on 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 the the show, you mentioned something about you know being big and scary, but but being nice in real life. And one thing, an afterthought I had was like, you know what's funny is like like say right after. Oh, you know what that? Uh, is? Hey, we got our presidential alert live on the air. It's the presidential alert. This is a test of the national wireless emergency. Alert system. Oh, you know what? I'm not getting it. No action, do you? Oh, there it is. There it is. Now, my phone is muted. Mine is, too. And it's not. Mine was on Do Not Disturb, but it's still. Mine is on Do Not Disturb. It's it's showing up, but it's not making noise. So I'm going to say that my phone is wonky. That's funny. Mm. I was expecting something more. I mean, like, a, hey, this is the president. Anyway. Hi, this is the president. Just pay no attention to that woman. Oh, God. Oh, man. You know, I had avoided that, and not to steer this way, I had avoided that talk he gave, oh. you know, that you guys played this morning. Yeah, sorry. I had avoided it, and then I was driving to the studio, and I figured I'd chime in and hear what you guys were talking about, so I wasn't coming in cold, and you played that clip, and it fucking, can I say that? Like, yeah. it fucking jarred me. It, like, shook me. Like, I was, like, literally upset in hearing him make fun of her... Her memory and all of that stuff. It's I can't, um, I don't know, I don't understand. And, you know, as an actor, you maybe, as a, uh, you know, I've been an actor. I, I try to get inside of people's heads, you know, and f- figure out how they think and why they do what they do. And I, I, I fail to understand how people cannot look at I don't know if you looked at any of that testimony when she gave oh, yeah, her yeah, yeah. I watched the I watched the confirmation hearing and you look at that judge Kavanaugh and watch what he does and how he handled all of that and you look at him and go now I know in a court of law you need evidence and you need this and you need that sure. but you look at that guy and you go that fucker is a an asshole mm-hmm. he is an asshole yeah he's a liar He's a, he, there, there's something ain't right with that guy. Yeah. Now that's not enough to go on. No, in, uh, you know, in 12-step programs, 
they would call him a dry drunk or a untreated alcoholic. Yeah. I'm not afraid of saying that. Like, like he was so angry and so deflecting and... And I mean, it's 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 been more or less proven that he lied at least about some things. Yeah. Um, and so there's dishonesty, and there's instability. So what is it? What does like, it say about where 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 are things where have things gone so wrong that a, a president of the United States who's had a- accusation after accusation against him can stand up in front of a bunch of people in Mississippi and say? The men have to be careful. There are so many false accusations. I wouldn't, you know, men are the ones who have to watch out, and there are women in the audience cheering that. I don't, I can't, I can't, I can't get it. It's, I mean, it's gaslighting, right? It's, 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 that's what I feel like the whole country is dealing with. And when the election process was happening, although we just, we're, we can see, I, this is more important than my career anyways. So, so um. During the election process, I was pretty vocal. Not so much about like like who's best for the job, but it's fit for the position. And it had everything to do with the fact that this guy is like a malignant narcissist. He's abusive in in terms of power and people, and you don't want that man in control because because he's not going to go away quietly. He's he's going to he's going to do everything he can to maintain. And and that's I feel like what we're seeing in mass is we're just like literally we're in a toxic relationship with our president and he'll spin everything out of control so we all feel crazy i've never felt more separated from people i love and more divided and that's a power play you know keep them keep them separate so you can control them but but it's something unique you know i took i took a particular stab at people here because you know um and my family did not react that well to it uh, nor did some others when the election was happening because i was like go for the third party candidate go for like how can the family values party you know go for go for this guy who has had numerous affairs and this and this and this and this like who like like he's sleeping with porn stars and you have this big war on porn like how can you vote against this and um and i f- i just feel like yeah he's dangerous man he's 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 a dangerous person in power. Yeah. I Well, I know. And I think that the behavior will get worse because... Like, let me ask you this. Because you're from here. I mean... Yeah, I grew up in Ogden. So, another thing on the show this morning, you guys were talking about these liquor laws. And I've been around and I've seen it. You know, I've, they're constantly changing it. And they're ma- mm-hmm. it seems to make a big deal out of these things. You know, and as a kid growing up here, these things that were made a big deal of... Um. So I was sort of more interested in, sure, because I wanted to be a free thinking and have my own opinion kind of person. So I, I felt like, you know, the church didn't talk about it. My parents didn't really talk about it. The Dare program that, like, like I was introduced to drugs and sex and all that through the schooling program with this really slanted angle, right? Which is just like it's so bad. But then you you, you go out in the street and you see people do it and they seem to have an okay life. And then you go, oh well, it can't be that bad. And then all of a sudden you're interested in it. Um, with the Prop 2 thing that's happening here. See, I, I've got this fetish with Utah politics. And, and with the Prop 2 thing that's happening here, I'm a huge proponent for um, the passage of medical marijuana and even recreational marijuana because I've seen it work in California. Like, like there's not... I, I hang out with a lot less people who use marijuana in California than I did here because 
it's not taboo. It's not special there. It's like, take it or leave it. If you like it, do it. If you don't, don't do it. I'm not going to judge you one way or the other. And I was being really loud about that for a while because it, it seems to work. It seems to work in, in uh, Denver and in other states where, where it's worked yeah. out. But then my last trip here, somebody was telling me that, you know, they were at an event or something and they, they had people actually like overdosing on edibles and and these kinds of and i was like well i could see how that can happen but it, it, it's prone to happen more here for the same reasons well i mean just to address it a, a little bit and then we'll get back to right sorry to yes help. yeah yeah sorry uh, we t- took a total uh it's it's uh when you demonize something and make it uh mysterious mm-hmm. when you make it mysterious when you make it something that's out of the norm and away from the mainstream, uh, kids in particular are curious about it. Right. What? What? What is it? Why is it so bad? Mm-hmm. Well, I know, I know that uh, Randy and, and, uh, and uh, John's parents, and they just live up the street, and, you know, they drink. Yeah. They smoke cigarettes, and I think they smoke marijuana. And, they, you know, they're really nice to me. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they have a, a nice house, and... You know they work and and those, they have their kids are nice and yeah and, uh, they don't seem like they're really weird or I don't know I don't get it that's it what there must be something I don't understand it's supposed to be really bad yeah I may I'm curious I'm curious what's going on mm-hmm. maybe I'm not being told the truth yeah. Maybe I'm not being told the truth about all of this. Well, and to to, to go off of that, because this is something that fascinates me as a former c- cigarette smoker. Um, me too. Which uh, I, I eventually quit by use of Alan Carr's Easy Way book. Which, if you're out there and you smoke cigarettes, check out Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. It's an amazing <laughs> piece of literature that's worked for a lot of people. But he talks about how... You know, say young girls start smoking to be sophisticated and look sexy, and young men start smoking to look cool and yeah. whatever. But by the time that you can actually look cool smoking a cigarette, like the biggest damage is done, um, because usually your first one is coughing and sputtering and on and on. Yeah, and uh, and then you have but to. But by God, I'll I'm get over. Learn. I'll get over that. <laughs> and and whatever happens in your mind there, where you go, where you know better than your natural instincts. That's the beginning of addictive behavior. They want to talk about gateway drugs. Take cigarettes off the fuck off the shelf, you know, because that's what it is. It's like, no, I'm going. No, you will take this. Mm-hmm. You will take this in yeah. spite of your your own natural reasoning. Sure, I mean the same thing with getting drunk. Yeah, but you throw up and everything spins around mm-hmm. and it's awful. But then you you go you you, you no I, I gotta get better at this. I gotta get better yeah. at this. I'm a professional now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and um and what, another thing that I've just noticed here. Um, is that there seems to be a a very loud like I see it in the music scene sometimes like I'll go to a club here and in the first ten minutes uh, like a local band will be like yeah fucking Salt Lake who's ready to fucking rock and roll goddamn and like they just like this litany of ex- expletives that is to say we are not with the mainstream culture or whatever like the the, the counterculture needs to be equally extreme and. uh and sadly, and that, Dave Grohl comes to town, and he may swear once or twice, right? Though. But you know, yeah, he may, yeah. Like it's an interest. It's just an interesting. It's an interesting thing, and it's it's terribly endearing. I love it. I, I'm I'm from it. You know that that was me. 
Um, but with a little bit of distance, you go, you know, like that middle road where it's just sort of like, like live and love and accept and moderation. Yeah. What is it? There's a quote where it's like everything in moderation, even moderation. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back. Let's get back. Yes. Let's get back to back to Charlie Halford, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, we were solving all the problems, Bill. Uh, we almost figured it out. Because yeah. because we actually will have to wrap up here in a minute. Mm-hmm. But I want to uh, touch on two or three key points that are in- interesting to me about you. Um, number one, uh, why vegan? How'd uh, that happen? Um, well, that was moral decision. Kind of a lot of things. Again, you know, I've the best things in my life, acting and veganism included, have sort of just been revealed to me by keeping an open mind and sort of allowing for some direction to take hold. Um, I went vegetarian as soon as I found out it was an option. I was probably about 12 or 13. Right around that age, I started making a lot of decisions for myself. That's also when I kind of fell out of the church and things like this. And, and um, But I had a friend whose older sister was vegetarian and she cooked and she made awesome vegetarian meals. And I said, oh, this is an option. And then at about age 14, some people will probably remember like the hardcore scene here, the straight edge scene here, and how kind of aggressive and crazy that was. Yes, I do. And veganism was a big part of that culture. Now, I got into straight edge also in part because, well, I knew that I was going down the wrong path. And this all happened about the same time as like, I want to give acting the credit, but I have to give this as, as much credit, where I knew that for me to get through high school and maintain a grade point average and all this stuff that I was going to have to straighten out. And I was a punk and I, I don't know, like in a heavy metal, you know, I was like listening to this weird, uh, radio station called KJQ and this, they always played these weird, drawn <laughs> by a bunch of ass. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Anyways. Um, so I was, so at the time, a bunch of my, um, friends, just yeah, they gravitated toward the hardcore music, and and then veganism was introduced to me through the the music scene on some of the bands. And I was already vegetarian, so I went ahead and and went with that. And then it, uh, that scene got so crazy. I mean, it literally got so crazy. It got, got, got kind of a lot of straight edge people were very mean. Well, they're in prison. I mean, yeah, I had I had a, a friend on uh, you know America's Most Wanted for you know blowing up a fur co op. You know, I, I don't know, I know if you remember who that, all that. I think I know who that is. Yeah. Do we want names? Mm, I'm trying to remember. I, I, so I remember Dave Berg was among those people, mm-hmm. but he's he 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 can kind of stayed away from the yeah. real. Well, I haven't heard from Dave. That's for a crazy. Long time. I, I mean, I'll leave him on name because I know everybody's trying to get their lives together, and but there was some crazy stuff that was happening, and it was the guy who wore the cow suit all the time. Yeah, a lot of times. Oh, is that's that the, funny. Is that the guy that you're talking about? No, but uh, but it got so crazy that like I was like, this ideology has my friends literally on the run from the federal government. I mean, post nine eleven, it was dr- domestic terrorism. What was going on here? That's domestic terrorism. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it was just like you know like rep and cred and you know like a scene yeah and so i that pushed me further into drama too because when i stopped being straight edge because you don't just stop being straight edge at least not at the time you know you have to go like drug free and then you got to be you know like you got to stop going to concerts if you don't want to get your ass kicked and all this kind of stuff and i literally hid out in the drama department and and i couldn't go to the vegan restaurants because they were populated by guys i was scared of at the time mm-hmm. i'm friends with all of them again now but i mean that took 15 years of just sort of letting everybody that's, be that's an interesting part of your life yeah, yeah. and um 
and then but I went back to being vegetarian like a drug addict. You know what I mean? So I was like so I was like extra cheese, extra mayo, give mm-hmm. me all the grease. Mm-hmm. And uh and so when I started getting into film, I would I went back to being vegan. So this is back in 99, 2000, so it's been a minute. Um, because it was like, okay, well, here's a diet that I know that I agree with ethically. I think it's tasty, and I could probably like lose some pounds, which will make me look sexier on camera. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly yeah, that part. <laughs> yeah, of it's, yeah. Well, hey, it's not so much. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, you, you sort of skirted around the Sundance mm-hmm. Institute. How, when did you do that? And uh, are you still affiliated with that? And do you go back there? Yeah, I. Um, it was always in my sights. Because again, to to beckon back to uh, the Stevens brothers, they they had a great little piece in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love, and they had what a great movie! It was a great great film, and uh, and they had ended up sort of in the running for that via another mutual friend, Ashley Clark, who met Paul at the Sundance Labs, and I was friends like so I was just like wow that happens, you meet a director early in their career, and. Uh, <clears throat> Make an impression, work hard for them, maybe that can come around later. And so it was always sort of a soft focus in my sights. I really want to do that. And once I got down there from about 2003, yeah, I was heavy, heavy on let's make an impression. Um, for better or worse, uh, let's make an impression. Well, I mean, you just go down there and start hanging out, or how do you No, get you, into you, it? No, you audition. Like, uh-huh. they, they, they do uh, some casting. I think Jeff Johnson, who's a big casting director around here, he does most of the major stuff. I think he's still involved, or his assistant, Robert Andrus, might be more in charge of that now. Mm-hmm. And then they have a casting person, Kathleen Broyles. So, so you, got, you got in by audition? Yeah, I auditioned my way in, and then once I was there, it was sort of, you know, I, I, I did everything I could to help both accommodate... Um, people who were hanging out in Salt Lake as well, or in in Utah as well as like, um, you know, offer up as strong a performance as I, as as I could. And and what's cool about that program is that you are allowed to sort of fudge. Like I I worked with Kerry Fukunaga um, on when he was developing his his I guess debut feature, which was Sin Nombre, all about the Central American immigrants that come through Mexico oh, right. and how yeah. It's a beautiful film as well. Um, but he had me playing like Amado Salvatrucha, like an actual like MS gangster, uh, MS thirteen. Like I had a big thirteen sunburned into me, <laughs> like after doing the work, uh, which is obviously like I'm six six and white. I'm never ever going to play that for money uh, in a real thing. But because we're down there on the mountain, I had the right energy that he that could work for that role, and and so I got to stretch out that way. And then I just kind of made a reputation for myself down there um, for. Yeah, and I, I did that for probably the, about four, four or five years running, and then um, I've been back uh, once since I've been out in L.A., and it seems like every year there's a couple conversations about the, the possibility of going back there and doing it. It's definitely something I love to do. Wouldn't it be great to be in a P.T. Anderson film? That'd be great. Yeah, he's on the, he's on the list. I got, I got that wish list, mm-hmm. and uh, he's definitely... He's definitely up there. And so uh, you said, I think before we started, Constantine. Mm-hmm. You you got you were a, 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 a recurring a recurring player. You were a cast member. Yeah, I mean, uh, after Lucy, it was a, it was a, Constantine was a show that was on NBC, and we did thirteen episodes, um, and we just didn't quite have the numbers to, and it was an expensive show, so we didn't really have the numbers to really keep it afloat. Sadly, um, but I did end up being yeah like number two on that call sheet. So 
so it was a regular job. It wasn't a big regular job just because it was so Constantine, John Constantine specific. Yeah. Um, but I did about 10 episodes. I did 10 episodes of that that season. It was an awesome, awesome experience. And that sort of that sort of got me out of the bar industry. That you know. made that you, you said that kind of that's that sort of made your career. How how is it that that kind of makes your career ultimately? Well, it was well one part. I mean, get, all the work that you've done makes your career, yeah. but that that was kind of like it's all it's all drops in the bucket. But but a job like that, you know, and the kind of money that it provides, at least in its while you're shooting it, but then also with like residual income, you know, has has made it to where I don't live a comfy life at all. Uh, there's still months that I'm like concerned that I might have to, you know, like, like take some work or something. But, but for the most part, uh, I survive on new work and then residual income and, and 10 episodes of a a television show that stays relevant kind of helps with that. Um, it also made me leave, like had that show shot in Los Angeles, I don't think I would have stopped working at the bar as crazy as that sounds. I'm just like paranoid like that. Like this whole thing could end tomorrow. I see what you mean. Yeah. But, but they shot in Atlanta so I had to give up this this bar job that was great and has no turnover. Uh-huh. So I knew once I was like leaving for six to nine months, I was leaving, and uh, and that and yeah. So it wasn't necessarily even a choice. It was just like okay, I guess I'm a like full time professional actor now, and uh, and the rest is just fighting the good fight. You know, guest starring here and there, and and seeing uh, what comes. I've been focusing more on feature films. Lately, but you certainly wouldn't turn down a recurring TV no, series. No, no, no heavens, no, yeah. no. Um, I think I, I I am getting you know I don't want to jinx me, but I am getting a little bit more. I think particular toward I think as I said earlier, the types of roles that uh, that I'd like to do, and then there is the real like a very real reality. Like you get, it's easy to get really excited and go, oh man, a series regular like that's awesome. But but the other side, and it is awesome. It's great money. It's like it's 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 a killer experience, and hopefully it's a great show, and you get a lot of love for it. But I was, you know, back when I was smoking, having cigarettes with Lance Hendrickson out in front of the the oh man, the Sutton place up in Vancouver. This is where they put everybody up for all the Vancouver shows. And he was just like, I, he goes, I I wouldn't. Uh, now what show was this? I was working on Lucifer at the time, and uh-huh. he was up there working on. It might have been Legends of Tomorrow or, or one of the Marvel shows, and he was just talking about how he, like the last thing he wants is a series regular thing because it's just the same thing all the time, yeah. and he'd rather bounce around and do different stuff. and And I, I kind of sympathize with it. I'm not in a place to say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's not a huge star, no. but he's certainly a, a commodity that yeah, he's, he doesn't have to worry about. He knows that someone will hire him. Yeah, he's never want for work. Yeah, and I'm not in that area i'm not in that arena i'm still like oh you know this could i feel like this could go either way i feel like it'd be harder to derail anything at this point which is which is nice knock Mm -hmm. on wood yeah but uh but but yeah there is something to be said about i mean that tv hustle is a hustle yeah it's a lot of it's a lot of work and like like i I, you know i did some work on law and order svu and they've been running that show 20 i want to say 20 plus years now and it's it's almost the same structure every i don't know how they do it well it's good money and their families are in new york like so so there's i I guess you just get up you go to work you know yeah you play the character and then you go home so so there's different sure types and i don't want to jinx anything by saying i'm this or that but but i i do like the i like the variety quite a bit yeah so yeah uh so uh the the thing that's going to be most current for you is 
I can't bad bad times at the bad El Royale. Times. <clears throat> bad yeah. times at the El Royale, uh, which I'm looking forward to seeing, and that'll be out probably when people are listening to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you do have another job lined up. I got a job lined up that I can't speak too much toward, but uh, there uh, it's called Laundromat, and it's a Steven Soderbergh movie. Um, I mean, it's so new that like it remains to be seen. You know, like I, I try not to speak on anything until like like even bad times at the OS. It's like until I see the movie, there's no guarantee ever that you might. Um, you, you, you you did the work. Yeah, you do the work. You got paid for it. Yeah, but they got runtime and who knows but where. They say, uh, you know that Halford scene. We could we probably. Oh, that you know we'll cut it a little bit, and they say, "You see, oh, that, that's my arm. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. my arm." Yeah. Well, and and there's stories like that that have uh, once again affected me. Friends of mine that I've watched like really hype a hype a, a deal, and then come out, and it's like, "Wait, didn't you say you were gonna?" And then you're backtracking and all of that. Yeah. But I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's just you know it's just a day's work and. Um, where, where is it going to be? Do you know? We're shooting out in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure they're taking it all over. It's a very cool. Uh, you know, it's Steven Soderbergh and it kind of at his, you know, where I fell in love with him, kind of that provocateur sort of stuff. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, I, I'm doing more, v- like, voiceover stuff. I'm trying to do that. So there was an animated feature, Death of Superman, that's out and available, pretty available now. I got a cool part in that, Bibbo Bobowski, who's like a Superman super fan, you know? Yeah, and you uh, should do a lot. You should probably do a lot of that kind of stuff. You got yeah. a good voice and... Yeah, and there'll be a second part of that coming out next year called Reign of the Superman, which I will return as Bibbo, as well as a surprise appearance that I won't spoil for anybody just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just looking forward to whatever else the universe has in store for me. So you got you got an agent? Yep. They send you out? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. When you do a, a project like that for uh, on the Soderbergh, it's a one-day thing uh, and then in some location in L.A., and probably miles away from your house mm-hmm. uh do they come and get you in a way um me no i'm sure there are people that get that treatment <clears throat> they just say show up right here's the time here's the place show up yeah and if you don't show up somebody else will do it yeah well and if you want to get into the real dirt of it i mean there's still jobs in atlanta that you know that i you know i i'll go work there and make like i live in atlanta to do you know, so so mm-hmm. I'll get myself there. I'll get a car. I'll just you know find a couch or something and get to, get to work. It's not it's not all it, it's not as pretty as it looks sometimes, yeah. but but it's worth it. It's worth it. <clears throat> and um, and yeah, I'm sure that you know obviously when you get a job out of state properly through through like L.A. agents, then um, you know yeah you get the whole treatment, the black mm-hmm. car, and the it's a, it's a weird thing. I mean you know so Steven Soderbergh and Jill, you think. Uh, well, I've been in a Soderbergh movie before. Oh, he, you know, so you think, oh, well, that's why you're going to be in this one. It's just casting directors, and they go, they look at that, and, the, and, the, and they say, oh, yeah, he was in Steven's other movie, and he didn't cause any problems. Yeah, I wonder if, I, you know, sometimes I wonder about, you know, me and Steven have, uh, I don't even know, I don't know if he even thinks twice about it, but for me, it's been the strangest kind of relationship, and it's been very... It's been very specific for me because really? I, because I did Ocean's Eleven, and I got cut out of it. the The real short version of that story was that I was working with Bernie Mac, and it was an improvised scene, and I just don't think I improvised the right scene. <laughs> and that, that is a whole other story. Yeah. But again, when the like that was another lesson toward like 
I came back to a hero's welcome, Salt Lake. My friends were, oh, yeah, Charlie, Steven Soderbergh, Bernie Mac. And I was just like, I felt weird about it the second the job was done. I had that feeling, that sort of sinking feeling that is just like, I don't know that that felt right. And, uh, and so I was like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And then eventually I went to see the premiere and 20 minutes into the movie, I'm like, I'm definitely not going to be in this movie because I was just so young and dumb. I never even asked for the script. I was like, oh, well, I'm improvising. They just liked what I did in the casting room, and I'll just do it again. And um, so I don't know. It's all speculation as to what actually happened because it could have been as simple as runtime. But but to me, I was on a mission mm-hmm. from that point on to be like to give Soderbergh a performance that he could use. <laughs> well, here's your chance. Yeah. And so uh, and so when he retired uh, some years back, I was like, ah, damn it, you know. But then yes, yeah, fate would would have it logan lucky came out i backdoored that through my atlanta agent i uh, did the whole did the whole local hire deal there mm-hmm. um and then finally on the heels of that met the the big casting director carmen cuba who who does all of his stuff mm-hmm. and that was in that was when i was in talks for bad times at the el royale and then through that process i think i endeared myself to her and the company further and so when this thing came up, I mean, I just, I quite honestly just got an email. And so. Oh, cool. So you didn't, you didn't have to read yeah. or anything. They just. Sh- yeah. So the casting director in the company s- s- emailed you and said, we think we have something for you. Yeah. If, are you available? You know, and I'm sure that, you know, Steven's got to pass off go. on those things. And so there you go. And because it's so there's a part. And one of, oh, that was that one guy that. Yeah. That, that Oh, that Halford guy. He'd be great. Yeah, for he this. can do it. He won't freak out. You know. Good. I think I, I I don't know. Who knows what that conversation? Maybe it was just like, eh, he's cheap and yeah, yeah. He has a car. To, he, has he has a, a car. car doesn't he? Can get there, yeah. <laughs> he won't make a scene. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we. Yeah, I think I got everything. That's I, a lot. Yeah, that was like a whole. I feel like a. I feel like uh, yeah. You want to kiss or something? I feel like we've really gotten to know each other. We have bonded, haven't yeah. we? Uh, no, I don't want to kiss you. All right. You've been eating those jalapeno poppers, and I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Are they good? They're so good. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, and Zest is a great place. Um, and uh, Casey, the uh, owner, is always very accommodating. Very nice to be here. Uh, Charlie, uh, great luck always when you're in town. Please look us up and absolutely and hang out. It's always nice to see you. I um, yeah. Hopefully, we'll have just bigger and better and cooler things to talk about as we go along. I so. great, and I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. Where will you be when it uh, opens? Will I'll you be, be back in I'll be back in Los Angeles get, getting ready for work. Okay, <clears throat> um, but I I am trying to get back here more and more. I really want to I really want to get back on some stages here. I mean, so uh, over the next year or so, I'm going to be trying to obviously this is all at the mercy of my career my mm-hmm. actual getting paid money career right uh but i really do i'm more interested in doing theater here than i am in los angeles or anything else for all of the reasons we just discussed you know like there's there's a culture here that i know and that i love there's good theater here too there's good theater there's great performers mm-hmm. there's great stages mm-hmm. and uh and i just love this city and you know my favorite radio shows here well, who does it uh you know guys, fisher and like, todd retired don't you uh, what are they? Bob and Kelly and, and that, yeah, they're. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a radio from Hell Show on X ninety six. Oh, that's the one. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's it for the uh, Let's Go Eat show, uh, the podcast that we do that I can never remember to promote on my regular radio show. Uh, but uh, thanks, Dylan, for producing the show. Thanks, thank to, you, Dylan. Thanks to Zest. Thanks to my guest, Charlie Halford. Uh, uh, I guess that's it. Uh, remember. 
If you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double. <laughs> <laughs>